When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Here on the Yank Report, we have explored the world of American soccer from a lot of different angles. We've talked to fans, we've talked to journalists, we've talked to former players. Today, we're exploring it from another angle that I think is very important, the world of the executive. We have USL, uh, let's see, I want to get the title right, Chief Marketing Officer Greg Lawless. He's a former player. Uh, He spent his uh, career lifetime uh, promoting the game of soccer. He's been the um, editor-in-chief of MLSsoccer.com. He was the director over at Goal. Uh, Just had a a lot of um, experience working in, in, in marketing and content around American soccer. Greg, thank you so much for coming on. Ah, well, I'm very, very excited to come on the show. I, I watch the show, so, you know, I keep seeing all these other people come on, and <laughs> so it's nice to nice to be here. So you just told me it's been, you've, you've been at USL for one month. What attracted you to the position and, and, and really got you wanted to, to work in USL? Well, um, it came about through uh, a friend of mine who I worked with at Major League Soccer for a long time named Amanda Vandervoort, um, and she joined the USL um, to head up the women's soccer uh, vertical for the organization. So when I came, she called me and said, hey, you know, they're looking for a CMO, would you be interested? And I said, I I would certainly be interested. And one of the reasons that I was so interested was they went out and hired Amanda. And I had so much respect for her and what she's able to do and the way that she thinks about soccer and thinks about uh, how to grow the game in America. Um, I thought that that was a real statement of intent from the organization. And then I started digging in, had some conversations internally, and I just sort of um, found myself really, really interested in the potential for where the USL is going. Um, You know, I'm steeped in soccer in America, and there's so much about the USL that I didn't even know about, right? And so as I started digging in, I got into, you know, like learning more and more about the culture of the the supporters and the clubs. And I mean, let's be honest, right? There are some amazing brands and identities and crests in here. And the jerseys are off the charts. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I started watching more games and I was like, wow, you know, the level's not that bad. It's And so just started thinking about all of that and thought there was a real momentum to what's happening there. And I thought, I want to get on that rocket ship now, especially when you think about 2026 down the road. Um, and it just seemed like an interesting thing to do. Wow. 
Sorry, my, my phone just rang here. And by the way, it was Amanda. So she must, she must <laughs> you know, her ears must be itching or something like that. Yeah, ears are ringing. So yeah. uh, it, it, how would you explain USL to someone who doesn't know about the league? Where, how would you position it in the world of, of American soccer? Well, I think the first thing to think about is that it's not just one league. And I think sometimes we conflate that, right? The USL is basically the umbrella organization for uh, what is really seven different league properties. So, you know, there's the USL championship, which is our highest level of soccer. Uh, it is sanctioned as the second division in the United States. Um, then there's USL league one. Sorry, that's on the men's side, I should say. USL league one, which is sanctioned as a third division. And it is um, also professional. And then USL league two, which some people may remember as PDL um, back in the day. Um, and it is a pre-professional league on the men's side as well. Then there's an, a USL Academy League, which incorporates you know more than 50 academies across the country. Most of them are affiliated. Uh, I think at this point, all of them are affiliated with one of the USL um, uh, clubs. And then on the women's side, in about three weeks or so, we're launching a new women's league called the W League. Um, and that's a pre-professional uh, league. So it's sort of elite amateur, if you will. Uh, summer league, really great for like college players who need to get stay sharp over the summer. Um, and that is a precursor to what we're doing in 2023 when we launch a fully professional league, the Super League uh, for women, which, you know, our our mission there is to really drive up the number of professional opportunities for women players uh, in the United States. There are 40,000 players in college uh, on the women's side right now. And, you know, with the N NWSL, you have maybe, what, 250 playing positions available to them. Um, and that's, you know, so like, how can we uh, elevate that and provide more opportunities for that? So that's like all the leagues. Plus, there's also like a super wide league and, and which is just extends across, you know, thousands of affiliate clubs and stuff. So how do I explain it? It is an organizing body that oversees a ton of soccer all across the United States. Football might be over, but MLS is coming back and Champions League and European soccer are in full swing. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, Bet Online is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive 50% off your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use promo code BELIEVE to get started. And it's not just basketball. Bet Online is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds, right to the Olympic coverage, from sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games. Bet Online is your number one online wagering destination. Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play all your favorite games. Bet Online, where the game starts. And what, what are some of the big opportunities and some of the. Um the obstacles that you're working to get over right now in uh, in growing this league? Yeah, you know, I think <clears throat> I think the opportunities are this. We are in 200 or so communities across the United States. So we are making real impact or our clubs are making real impact in local communities in places that typically have been kind of soccer deserts in many ways. You know, um, there's plenty of soccer in New York or in Los Angeles or something like that. But you know, to take really good high level professional soccer or high level pre-professional soccer to a, you know, uh, Greenville or to Chattanooga or something like that, you know, and like finding areas where we can we can be um, a vital and integral part of the community using soccer to bring that community together and to um, 
you know, share the passion for the game that people like you and me, uh, you know, thrive on. And so like, you know, I grew up with this game and this game has given me so much from my friends, my, you know, my livelihood, um, my sense of like how I approach things is very much about, uh, you know, even in the business world, I approach things looking at as if I'm looking at a team on a field. How can we impart that to other people or share that with other people and bring them and welcome them in? Um, so that's where I see this huge opportunity. We are in so many communities and have an, an, an opportunity to have a real impact at, at the local level. Um, you know, and we're also in a huge growth phase right now. We are planning over the next four years to add another 50 or so professional clubs. Uh, we've got like 30 plus stadium project projects in development over the next four years. So we're, we're really looking to grow. Um, some of the challenges, you know, I, I think that some of the challenges are that, you know, I, I still don't know if, as you and you said, right, do people really understand what the USL is yet? Right. Um, and so I think that there's some brand awareness in that way or some understanding of it. And that's why I'm on board, right, is to try to, to solve those issues and see how we can continue to drive ourselves forward. Uh, a lot's been written about the uh, the challenge that MLS is facing right now in that they're getting a lot of people to the stadiums, that they're getting local support, but they're struggling to get uh, uh, people to watch the games on TV. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and TV, of course, is the lifeblood uh, income for, for any professional league. Uh, is that something similar that, that we're seeing in USL? And, and if so, how do you approach that problem? How do you get people outside of those markets to pay attention to the league and care about these teams? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a challenge, I think, for, you know, for all sports, especially now, like we have to remember that sports just in general, are now competing with so many other they're competing with Netflix, they're competing with, um, you know, esports, they're competing with yeah, like know. baseball and hockey have the same problems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I think that um, for us, uh, similar to uh, MLS, right, we are actually um, working on new media deals ourselves and uh, are looking forward to what that will look like in the future. Um, we think that what, what we have as a product, as a fan experience, is really great. Um, and, you know, I think for us right now, I think it can be really helpful to focus specifically on what those local um that local relevance as much as possible um and try to grow those audiences and then and you know and then as we think about that national audience what can we do in moments to make things spike right what are some elements that we could do or some things that we could do to say hey how do we get our final to just really spike because people understand that this is uh relevant to it um and i also think we need to be innovative in in many ways right so what what are things that we can do to our broadcasts to make them um both authentic right we want to be authentic to the game and the spirit of the game but we also want to try things and see what else we could do that could be interesting that would drive uh, additional people to watch to pay attention um and to be excited uh you know the thing i always tell people on my team is that our job as marketers or content creators or storytellers whatever you want to call us our job is to inspire fandom um and so what can we do with our broadcasts that would inspire fandom what can we do with our in-game experience at the stadium that can inspire fandom and maybe improve the broadcast or something like that so um you know, I think I think that's a challenge across sports. We're all facing it. Um, but uh, at the USL, I think we have an opportunity to maybe try some things uh, that could be really interesting and help drive that.
What are the factors that you think actually creates a fan? What what creates that connection between uh, a, a fan and that team? Um, I think that it is culture and values, right? I think that um, if somebody wants to be a fan of something, it, it has to have a, an emotional meaning for them. Um, and, you know, one person uh, told me recently who is at a club, and they, they said it perfectly. I'd heard it before, but it was like, it was cool to hear it again, right? Which is like, soccer in America is not about the soccer, right? Um, it's about community. It's about friendships. It's about culture. It's about um, like identifiers, right? I wear this jersey uh, out on the street because it identifies, uh, it, it allows me to sort of identify to the world who I am and what I care about, you know? Um, it's like, you wear a Messi jersey versus a Ronaldo jersey, you're making a statement one way or the other, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's true in soccer in America. So um, I think that the ability to build community through the game or through supporters or through engagement with fans, that's where fandom comes from. Uh, ask yourself, right? The, the number of people who are fans of the game because they are breaking down how a goal happened or something like that, right? That's a very small number. Most people are fans of the game because they sat there with someone they care about and watched a game and had a moment. Um, you know, for me, it goes back to when I would sit with my grandmother in Greece and watch uh, soccer on TV with her for the World Cup. Um, you know, those moments are what ended up making me a huge soccer fan uh, because it always sort of refers back to those emotions that I had. So to me, that's what fandom ultimately is. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you, first of all. And I think that not just soccer, but like other sports, it, it really informs yeah. why I'm a fan of other teams and other sports. And, and uh, by the but way, for a league... Sam, it's not just sports, right? Think about like music, right? Yeah. Bands or acts that you love, right? It's how many times do you hear a song? And you think back to a moment when you heard that song, like mm -hmm. whatever you, somebody just broke your heart and you're listening to, you know, something as you're driving home after the breakup or, you know, or the other way, right. You just like fell in love and this other song is playing. And it's, that's like, that's what fandom is, right. It's an emotional connection to something. Hey, it's interesting that you, you say um, culture and community because we have these discussions about how to grow the game and how to get people excited about the game in this country all the time. And people always talk about, you know, raising the level and the quality of, of play in the league, of introducing things like pro rel or, you know, bringing in big stars or whatever else. But I, I always come back to this idea that these are still – MLS is 25 years old. USL is like 10 years old. Um, how do you compete with a, a league that somebody uh, that's like uh, their family's been um, watching that league for generations and, and they grew up, you know, their baby pictures are in that jersey. You know, that's something that you, USL just can't replicate at this point because you don't have enough time in the market. So how do you how do you bridge that gap? How do you create those fans whenever you don't have that history? It's a it's a difficult, difficult task. It, it's difficult, and I think that that's also the, what makes it fun. And, and that's the opportunity, right, is that I think a lot of people, whether it's us or, you know, investors and owners, right, they're, they're looking into that to say, oh, we've just started creating what I call the soccer generation, right? Mm -hmm. And that soccer generation, we're finally at a place where Americans 
and Canadians, right, have grown up with soccer and a um, very um, accessible local soccer at a good level and a good fan experience um, has always existed. You know, if you if you go back to MLS, right, 25 years old, you now have 25 year olds who've never known life without MLS in their family, in their city uh, or in their family, maybe. Right. Uh, look at USL. Think about the Richmond Kickers. Right. They've existed for what almost 30 years or something like that. Right. So here's a club that in Richmond, someone has grown up. The kickers have always been there. And so, you know, that is what's creating the soccer generation and now able to pass it down to the next one because you know, there might be people who are 40 and they started going to games when they were 10 or 15. Now they have kids that they want to take to games or watch on TV together. Um, and I think that's really, really relevant. I know you do a lot of work around, you know, the U.S. national team. The U.S. national team was largely irrelevant until, you know, really 94. You could say that in 1990 when they made the World Cup. Yeah. But in 90, when they made the World Cup, that was still a very small, very soccer avid thing um, in America at the were time. Were those games even televised in the States? <laughs> I watched them. So they were televised, right? <laughs> I can't remember if it was ABC or maybe it was TBS that had them. I think it was TBS and like, or maybe Ernie Johnson. Not, uh, maybe Ernie was doing them something. Anyway, but my point being that there was still a very small soccer avid crew back then relatively small right 94 saw that explosion when all of a sudden the national team became very relevant so now you have people that can remember that who were you know you hear about players now in leagues who were like i was a ball boy in chicago or i went to mm -hmm. this game and that kind of, you know, they talk about that um that's how you create a soccer culture um, and that's how we're creating a soccer generation that is just now really starting to come into their own um, and that, I think, is what has so many of us excited about the next four years leading into 26 and then beyond of where this game is going. Yeah, there's a very iconic picture out there right now of a young Weston McKinney uh, with yeah, Landon Dallas, Donovan. Right? Right? Yeah, it's just a really cool moment. It's showing that connection of how how important these World Cups are to, to bringing the next generation through. And, and speaking of World Cups, you mentioned in your uh, press statement whenever taking the job over at USL, uh, how important this 2026 World Cup was, was going to be for mm -hmm. USL. Can you kind of elaborate on that and explain why you feel that's going to be such an important uh, benchmark for the league? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in my view, the USL is really going to lead the charge in sort of shaping the future of soccer in America, right? We have so many touch points across the uh, the country in so many communities. And to really do that, you need to take a leading role as to telling your local communities or, or um, collaborating or coordinating with your local community that you are soccer in that community, right? I, I look at something like New Mexico United, right? Their approach to everything is we are the the um the centerpiece of soccer in new mexico our mission actually doesn't even talk about soccer it just says we want to unite new mexicans in ways they've never been united before i look at them and say well okay when 2026 comes how is new mexico united going to activate that mission around a sort of larger picture about the world cup right 
so many new people are going to come into soccer in 19 in 2026 they're going to you know see games for the first time they're going to experience what it means to be a fan um, or watch somebody else experience it right whether the, you know if the when the dutch come and they're all wearing orange and they're all doing their thing or the brazilians and they'll say wow look at that i didn't know that was possible but you know i hope more more likely they are going to put on some stars and stripes and sing along with um you know the american outlaws or barra 76 or whatever right and do all of that um but they'll they'll become fans they're then gonna okay and they may go watch that game in wherever los angeles or boston or whatever it is right they'll go watch that game then they're going to go back to new mexico and they're going to say i want to still be part of this and like they're going to look at it and say new mexico united is showing me that i can be part of this every single week and so that's how I think we have an opportunity. And it's not just there, right? Again, it's in Greenville or Madison, Wisconsin, or these, you know, these markets that are are not necessarily going to host games, but they are still part of the soccer fabric that these new people are going to um, experience for the first time. And so I really want the USL to be in a position at that time to take advantage of that, to welcome in more people into our uh growing soccer family if you will yeah and by the way new mexico one of the coolest logos in all of american soccer i really love it i mean and the jersey and their you know the the way they released their jersey it was amazing right and that's just one example across the league you know like uh, i mentioned madison right they have amazing stuff what they did last week with the ukraine kit really really cool um you know but it it I, I could just keep going on and on. Like I was uh, talking to the the people up at Vermont Green FC recently, you know, and like they just announced a, a Mate sponsor, right? I mean, how cool is that, right? It's so soccer and it's just so cool. It's, it's just those are kinds of things that make me excited about all this. So I, I put out a tweet um, about USL the other day on my Twitter account, just kind of asking fans what their thoughts were on the league, where do they see it uh, in, in the U.S. soccer mix, and, and what do they hope for it going forward. And by far, far and away, uh, the biggest response that I got, and I th- you probably already know where I'm going with this, <laughs> was about ProRel. Uh, mm-hmm. We know that USL is a multi-tiered league, so it, it seems like it sets up for like a traditional ProRel. I understand that there's tremendous... Um, tremendous uh, obstacles to overcome in, in instituting a, a pro rel in this country. So I'll ask you, do you think it's something in the future for USL? Do you think it's even feasible in this country to have something like that? Uh, do you think it's possible um, with, with such a young league? What are your thoughts on pro rel at the moment for USL? Um, you know, to quote some sort of ad campaign that was out there at some point, right? Nothing is impossible. And that's especially true in the United States. And I think that's even more especially true when it comes to soccer in America. Um, soccer in America has a long history of innovating in, um, in, in interesting ways. Some of them have worked, some of them haven't. Um, you know, think about the countdown clock. Okay, that maybe didn't work, right? But some other things that have worked, right? You know, I mean, even going back to putting the score bug on TV, right? Soccer was the first one that did that in the US and everyone else was like, I can't believe you're doing that. Now, would you ever turn on a, a TV of a sports event and the score bug isn't there? Right? It just wouldn't happen, right? So um, soccer's history of innovation is there. Um, ProRel, I think, as you mentioned, has a lot of challenges that would come with it, right? But I think that it is something that we at the USL are 
exploring and thinking about, right? And trying to figure out, okay, well, what specifically are those challenges? Are there solutions to it? Uh, we're certainly interested in it as we consider how can we align ourselves with the global game uh, more. I, I don't know if you saw, but with the Super League, we made an announcement about a month ago that the, the new Women's League will kick off in um, August of 2023 and run through the winter, if you will, and then finish in June. So it's basically aligned with most of the European leagues from a calendar standpoint, which is another thing that people talk about. I'm not, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, there That's might be one people I got. that think about that, that hit you up on Twitter with that question too about yeah. the, you know, one loves to do, um, you know, the international calendar kind of thing. And so that that's part uh, for us, part of a strategic um, initiative to see how we can maybe align with um, some of the other leagues around the world. Um, and there's real benefit to that, right? One is we think actually it can provide a little bit more uh, rest for our players, um, the ability to, to recuperate, um, mental uh, fatigue as well is an important thing. Um, I think that you know this is about the Super League specifically, right? Um, but it kind of talks about that alignment it opens us up so we're not taking away our best players during an international tournament. And we can use an international tournament to celebrate the game. Um, so, you know, um, whenever a Women's World Cup is happening in June, we're not taking away great players from our local club team. Instead, our local club team can say, all right, let's all sit and we'll celebrate this together, right? This amazing moment that happens. Um, and then, uh, you know, it also makes it a little bit easier on a transfer market. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we want to do is try to be one of the leading participants in the, you know, the growing women's uh, soccer transfer market. So if there's an opportunity to bring in players in August, right before our season starts instead of mid season, um, and then we're just aligned with the rest of the world on, on that whole element of it. ProRel is another one like this that we are exploring to see how does it, um, you know, how are we more aligned with what the rest of the world does or most of the world does? Um, but we are exploring all the various opportunities, uh, all the various elements of it, right? We have to see, okay, how does it help uh, fan growth or fan interest, right? Does it, what's involved in terms of, you know, clearly weather is an issue, but all of the various elements that we have to take into account. Um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see if it's something that we think is ultimately viable. I know a lot of people are going to be paying attention to the uh, Super League with that international calendar. I know that's a big thing. So people are going to be watching to see, is it feasible in this country yeah. with uh, with the winters the way they are in the northern part of the United States, how, how that will play out. Now, as far as ProRel, um, I know that if you guys instituted ProRel tomorrow, that you would be able to go out there as a marketer and be able to really tell this story about, you know, how every game matters and how it's so important and, and you, you'd you have a lot of uh, ammo in your gun uh, mm -hmm. as a marketer. But as far as, I, I I know people see it as a silver bullet, but I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's something that's just going to completely change everything as soon as it's instituted. No, no. And, and, but I think that that's okay, right? I think, you know, I don't think ultimately that the growth of soccer is, um, to quote Kathy Carter, who ran sort of commercial stuff for uh, MLS for a long time and is now the head of the Los Angeles Olympic uh, Organizing Committee. Um, you know, she used to say, it's not a revolution, it's an evolution. And all of this stuff that we are doing throughout the soccer industry right, is just slowly evolving the game forward, you know. 
um, I think you you look back at what what the '90s were like. That was survival mode. It was just mm-hmm. how can we, as a soccer industry, survive at long enough to make the industry viable commercially. And once it was financially stable, now you can start to think about ways that you can adapt, change. You have to adapt with the times anyway. You have to adapt with you know, technology and trends and all of that. And so, you know, you're right. I don't think that if ProRail were to be instituted tomorrow, it's not as if soccer is going to pass the NFL tomorrow. It's just not going to happen, right? Um, I do think it would be an interesting differentiator between soccer and the other sports in America. Um, you know, I've often thought about ProRail as something that People often talk about ProRail in the United States, at least. It's like, that's how the rest of the world does it. And that's true, right? But what I love about it is to flip it and say, that's how no one in America does it. That's cool, right? And so like, so that's the way I'm thinking about it um, from a marketer's standpoint. Mm-hmm. Again, we have no idea if it'll happen uh, ultimately. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think that, that there is, it would provide lots of fodder for marketing. But yeah. it's not a silver bullet by any uh, way, shape, or form at that point. It would take yeah, especially with, with such a young league, and, and really all soccer leagues in this country are young leagues, mm-hmm. um, whenever you're making TV deals and you're saying, okay, we exist in this market, in this market, in this market, and then you institute ProRail, and all of a sudden your top two biggest markets are out of the league, and they're replaced by very small markets, you know, that that really changes how you're able to bargain for TV deals. And, and that changes the money coming in. If you're trying to um, induce new investment into the league uh, and convincing someone to go out and take a loan for millions of dollars in order to build a stadium and youth yeah. academies and infrastructure. And then all of a sudden they're out of the league and, you know, they're in the tier three of the league and, and their income is cut dramatically. That's it's difficult to do if you're asking for investment from multiple parties and you're also saying, Hey, your investment might not be secure and that's something you got to live with at this point with with this immature soccer market i i just it seems really difficult even though it would be very fun yeah and you know i think and these are all the questions that, that i think we all in the soccer industry just need to continually ask ourselves about this as anyone who explores it right um the, the other one is that you know the the requirements as the divisions go up change right in terms of like the size of your stadium or yeah, you know, that kind yeah. of stuff, right we've seen clubs in europe have to deal with this too right whether mm-hmm. it's a tiny club that somehow all of a sudden makes it up into a you know a, a division two or even a division one i think um what was the little club in spain that all of a sudden you know popped up and they had like a five thousand seat stadium and i was like that's not big enough i mean they got a waiver i think or whatever but like those are things you have to think about that Oh, you know, if you win that division, you might all of a sudden have to yeah. add millions of dollars to your stadium to get it up to uh, standards for the next division or something like that. And so you're right. The, the, the financial side of it is not always it's not sexy to talk about that because everyone loves to talk about the other side of it. It's like, oh, every game matters and all that. Right. But but there's a reality yeah, you just, to it as well. You put in pro rail, the money will come. It'll be good. You don't have to. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> but I think, you know, I look, that might be true too. We just have to, we, we don't know. We, we, people just, honestly, we just need to sort of put our noses down and do the work to understand what, yeah. what would be involved in something like that. 
And it's always fascinating watching uh, the uh, La Liga or watching Serie A, especially where you'll see like Real Madrid playing in this tiny stadium mm -hmm. against this team that just got promoted. It's it's really interesting. Anyway, I want to move on. Uh, one of the mo more interesting stories I've seen in the sports marketing world over the last few years has been uh, the F1 series Drive to Survive. Mm -hmm. Now we've seen a lot of um, of sports related dramas. You know, like Hard Knocks is a big one in the NFL. The NFL now has a bunch of them. Uh, we've seen them in, uh, in in the English Premier League. I know uh, Juventus had one recently. Uh, but Draft to Survive seems to have really caught the attention, captivated an audience in the United States, and made F1 so much more popular. And there's so many more eyes on the sport. And it was done through just really, really, really good storytelling mm -hmm. um, in, in a really tangible way. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, how do you see something like that that's been so successful uh, for F1, a sport that went from just not scratching the needle in the United States. So all of a sudden, uh, being a very popular sport, how do you take those lessons and kind of apply them to uh, USL? Um, it, so a couple things about Drive to Survive, first of all. So I grew up a Formula One fan. Um, yeah. I grew up watching Ayrton Senna and, um, you know, Nigel Mansell and Alan Prost and all these guys I'd wake up on Saturday mornings, turn on uh, CBC from Canada because we grew up in Detroit. So we used to get CBC and they were the only ones who showed Formula One back then. And they would show it on like, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. I'd be up there and my parents would be wondering why I was in the TV room watching TV at eight o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Um, but uh, so I was sort of aware of it. Um, the the show, when the show came about, I was I was familiar with the producers, right? So um, the guys who made Senna and, and they made Amy and all that. And I'd actually done a little bit of work for them on a, uh, a potential project at one point. Um, so we were like really excited when it came out um, to see it. Turn it on, watch the first season. And um, I remember the first episode and I forced my wife to watch it with me. Um, forced is the wrong word. I, she was probably reading. And then all of a sudden, she just starts paying attention. And next thing you know, she's like, she is fascinated with uh, Daniel Ricardo. Um, and then she's like, oh, let's watch another episode. Let's watch it. So my wife has watched every single episode of Drive to Survive since it has come out. She has never once watched or cared to watch a race. Right? <laughs> So, and I'll, I'll get to how this relates to the USL and things like that. I call her a Formula One fan. She does not. She does not think of herself as a Formula One fan because she doesn't watch the races. I think of her as a Formula One fan because she is engaging with the Formula One brand and the Formula One story. And so for me, that's a fan. And she's so, so much a fan they have inspired so much fandom in her that she is like, oh, my God, the new series is out. Or when is the new series out? And I'm like, it's August. It's not coming out until February. Give it a chance. <laughs> Got to get through the season, you know? Um, so, <clears throat> so when I think about that and I think about this is just amazing storytelling that creates drama. Um, and then it got a really great distribution platform. Right. So they were able to get it to people um, out to people who would watch it and become fans. Um, and they got it into a distribution channel, Netflix, that is known for quality, 
um, and is known for storytelling in particular, right? Um, so it wasn't necessarily a sports channel that people would be like, I'm not going to go there because that's a sports story. This was really a person story. It was a human story. So I think that for the USL, that's something that I think we can actually lean into. I'm not saying we're about to do like an all access series that's going to go on Netflix or something like that. We're going to start small on things like this. But that idea of inspiring fandom in someone who maybe never actually watches a game, I think can be um, a real inspiration for us when we're thinking about our storytelling. Is it someone who says, wow, that's a really cool shirt. I want to own that shirt because it says something about me. I think about like a Detroit City FC, right? They have amazing gear that is worn all over the city of Detroit. I don't know how many of them have actually gone to Detroit City FC games. Probably a fair number of them, but not all of them, right? But they're fans because Detroit City has done a great job telling their story and allowing someone um, or encouraging someone to become a fan uh, and then express that fandom in a certain way. Like my wife expresses her Formula One fandom by saying, let's watch the new season. Another person expresses their Detroit City fandom by wearing a scarf or a hat because it looks cool, right? Um, and so for the USL, I think storytelling about our league and about the, um, the culture of our league is going to be vital to our growth and our success. Um, and it's something that from the minute I got uh, to the league uh, or the USL offices, I was like, okay, what are we doing to tell the story of our league? to inspire fandom and people who may not always be, they may not know about our, our organization or the club in their town or anything like that, or they might, but they're not engaging with that brand enough. So as a very long-winded answer to your question, but ultimately <laughs> great storytelling is the key to inspiring fandom for anything. I'm, I'm curious because I'm, I'm playing, I'm paying close attention to this, um, this MLS TV deal, which is going to have massive implications for all of American soccer moving forward. But I'm seeing that there's a, a, a few players in that TV deal that are maybe non-traditional sports networks uh, that like HBO was, you know, rumored. Uh, uh, Disney is, is one of them that's uh, Disney plus or Apple T whatever it is, um, or, or what, some of the players. And, and I'm wondering if uh, this kind of marriage of, storytelling content and sports is, is going to be uh, something moving forward seen as like a model for uh, for how to uh, showcase sports and, and build sports content. Well, I think that, you know, Drive to Survive has, um, it's set the standard for what storytelling is in sports, just the same way that NFL films did back in the 60s and 70s, and then Hard Knocks did back in the early 2000s or late 1990s, uh, whenever that actually started. That type of storytelling, they, they've changed what that type of storytelling is all about, right? Um, and, you know, something like Drive to Survive, you then look at the lagging success that came from that, right? Where mm -hmm. Viewership of races is way up. Sponsorship is way up. Now there's a third race happening in the United States, right? Because obviously Drive to Survive was, and Netflix especially was a strategic uh, yeah. decision 
about the U.S. market, right? So yeah, now last year the race in Austin was absolutely massive, and that's not huge, something right? you could traditionally say with Formula One. Exactly, and now they're going to Vegas for another race. So there's like there's all yeah. these races now in Formula One. They're going to be in the U.S. because they're they're they are conquering the U.S. market, and it's not a coincidence that very quickly other types of shows like that have started to jump on on board, right? There's uh, the PGA announced one that they're going to do, you know, very similar kind of thing. You could actually probably call it Drive to Survive, or maybe it's Putt to Survive. <laughs> I don't know. Um, right? So, like, but they're going to do one. Uh, MotoGP, which is the motorcycle version of Formula One, they have a, a, a version of it that they've done. Other people are going to do similar things, um, which <clears throat> I actually look at that and say, well, you know, they've already done it. What if you try something different, right? Formula One, I think their success is because they did something different and they made sure that they paid to get really good quality storytelling. Um, you know, they, they they paid for some really talented people to be involved. You, you need to make sure you do a similar thing, but maybe try something else, right? Um, because was it the uniqueness of Drive to Survive, which is what led to its success, uh, is the question I think everybody needs to ask. So what can you do that is different than them that would maybe help to drive your success. I want to uh, shift gears now and, and uh, talk to you not so much as a uh, as as an executive for USL, but some of your former positions in in the media world in US soccer. I mm -hmm. mean, you were uh, editor in chief of uh, MLSsoccer.com. You were the site director over at Goal, which are two of the bigger uh, distribute soccer content platforms out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you were a columnist at Sports Illustrated. Uh, in, in this last cycle, there's been a ton of scrutiny over the media in USL. Soccer. Mm -hmm. and, and the big complaint is that uh, American journalists are not, uh, let's say, not to use a word from uh, Jurgen Klinsmann, not nasty enough, mm -hmm. uh, not critical enough, um, not asking the tough questions. And they point to um, journalists from, say, England, Mexico, countries like that, which really get after the soccer players and the soccer coaches. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that as far as uh, the media, the soccer media in this country and, and sort of that lack of bite? Is that a fair criticism or is, are we missing something as fans? Um, well, I think if that's how someone feels, it's a fair criticism. If that's the way you, you want to you know, feel about it. I think that, um, you know, I think some of this criticism is that the expectations for the U.S. national team have risen. Um, I think that sometimes there are, uh, when I when I look at some of this criticism, at least, I find that um, uh, some of it is coming from people who maybe are not as steeped in the history of the national team and the game. And so they may not understand all of the context involved in covering this team uh, or covering the national team in particular or covering soccer. Um, you know, so I think that it's certainly fair to criticize if you want to criticize. If you don't think they're doing a good enough job, go find someone who is, right? Um, and, you know, and so, like, that's the other thing. It's like, if you don't like what this journalist is doing, don't follow them. Right. Go find a journalist who is doing that, but also understand that um, the game, the way the game, the journalism or the media game is played. Right. Is that that person you don't like might also have the relationships and the uh, access to things 
that the other person might not have, right? And you may not like that, but that's reality, right? That um, so I think that if if people want to be critical of the media, I think that's perfectly fair, and I think that the media should listen to that, right? Um, I don't think the media should block someone who is critical of them, but I also think that if you're going to be critical of them, then uh, be fair in your criticism and you know back up your points, right? Um, what I have seen in general is there's a lot of hot taking. Is that a word? I don't know, is that a verb? Right? It can't there's be. a lot of hot taking in, um, especially around the national team. And for whatever reason, Burhalter, uh, you know, Greg seems to. It, it doesn't really matter what he does or what the results are. It seems like it's never good enough. And I don't know what. I don't know what else anyone could really ask of him from a result standpoint it seems like um one of the big hot takes is that he's not getting enough out of the most talented team the u.s has ever seen or something like that but he's won everything so i don't know what it means so then you go back to like oh it's not playing the style that i like okay well that's a personal opinion you know um so you know i think about like Joe Scally, for example, right? Everyone yelling and screaming that Joe Scally should have been called in, you know, that kind of thing. And then when he isn't, right, people yell at the media for not demanding Greg answer why Joe Scally wasn't called in or something like that. That's not the media's job. The media's job is to cover the team that has been called in, right? And if they lose, then you could say, do you think you should have called Joe Scally in? They didn't lose, right? And they qualified. They did exactly what they're expected to do. Um, this is kind of a rambling answer, but my bottom line is, if you want to criticize the media, criticize the media. You have every right to criticize the media. You have every right to, I just think, do it respectfully and do it um, with backup for what you're trying to say. What's something you feel like fans get wrong about the American soccer media? What do, what do we not know that you guys know? Um, I think that the... Uh, what is something that fans don't, don't get about the U.S. soccer media? Uh, that the media, no matter how much they say that they are that their job or it's important for them to remain neutral or agnostic or anything like that, they actually do care. They are fans. We are fans. And, you know, we want the U.S. to win and we want the U.S. to do well and we want soccer to grow. Um, and that's both from a personal standpoint, right? They have the passion for it, but also professional. It's only going to help their job, right? So the bigger soccer is, the more that a media person can, you know, frankly, the more money they can earn, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, but I also think that a lot of the media, especially now, right? Because we talked about the growth of that soccer generation, right? The media is part of that. They're just coming into their own as a media as well. Um, and so, and there are new voices that are coming up that are learning the ropes a little bit about what's involved. Um, and you know people who have long-standing relationships with the with the the actors involved right like i mean i played against greg berhalter when we were 16 for example right so 
it, it doesn't mean I can't be critical of him or, or take a critical eye to what he's doing, but it also means I'm going to show him a certain amount of respect and be as fair as possible to him. So. Ah, that's interesting. And uh, of course, we can't talk about the American soccer media with you without mentioning your brother, Alexi Lawless, who's been uh, one of the biggest media broadcasters in American soccer media since his playing days and even during his playing days. Uh, he's found a way to stay relevant. Uh, I know that he's a um, he's a figure that that gets a lot of criticism himself and is kind of a lightning rod with, with sort of his hot takes. Uh, but what's something that we don't know about Alexi? What's something we don't know about Alexi? Um, I don't know. He's kind of out there all over the place, isn't he? Yeah. Um, one thing that I would probably say about Alexi is that mm, he probably won't want to hear this, but more often than not, he's probably the smartest person in the room. Um, and people may not like how that comes across or the way he presents that. Um, but I think that he is, it's all very intentional. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, people like to say, oh, he's just there to stir the pot. It's like, yeah, he is. But this, that's part of the entertainment, man. That's part of the show, right? So, um, you know, it, and every time you react, Right, he wins. Right, so he or or I shouldn't say he wins. He's done his job. Mm -hmm. so, and I can tell you that as a little brother, right? Because the same thing happened when I was like, you know, twelve or whatever, right? And every time I would turn and call him a name or you know, try to give him a Charlie horse in the thigh because he said something to me or whatever, then I was like, ah, he did his job. He won again. Right. So, um, anyway. How's that? I know he has a reputation of being kind of a wild man with the guitars and the headbands and the goatee and stuff. But I, I think I read in your Wikipedia that after you retired from soccer, like you, you toured the country on a motorcycle. I did. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think. Uh, yeah, I got on a motorcycle in Boston and uh, I rode to California over two months. Two months. It was it was awesome. I, I highly recommend that if anybody wants to see the country, get on a motorcycle and do it. Um, I would recommend not doing it alone the way I did. Um, it would just be because mainly because it'd be nice to share it with someone else, right? If it's another motorcycle, a friend on a motorcycle or, you know, whatever, a partner or something on the back or on the front, whatever, it doesn't matter, right? Um, I think that that would be, uh, I would do it again, but I would not want to do it alone. Because um, there were there were times I was in a place in my life in my head at that moment where I just needed to clear my head and you know being stuck in a helmet going across you know the salt flats of Utah for example was perfect for me at that time. Um, but looking back on it, I wish I had had someone to you know pull into a campsite or whatever and say let's talk about what we just saw. Yeah, you know, or let's talk about where we want to go tomorrow because we don't have any agenda. So um, I would do it again, but not alone. It seems like the more uh, 
people involved in American soccer that I talk to, the more I see that uh, kind of outlaw, kind of outsider trait that seems to run through all of you. It seems to uh, be something that I, I see regularly. Now, I, I do want to wrap things up, and I, I, I want to go back to uh, USL and American soccer for a second. Mm-hmm. Let's say uh, 25 years from now, uh, where do you see in 25 years the American soccer landscape, and where do you see uh, USL within that American soccer landscape? Oof. That is a that is a hard question. Um, I you know <clears throat> I hope that in twenty five years, um, soccer has the the soccer fan base, be it USL national team MLS, all of this right because we're we're all working to advance the game here. Um, and that's on the field and off the field, right? Um, my hope that is in 25 years, the soccer fan base is so large and so passionate that um, we aren't having these types of discussions about where is the soccer fan base going or you know, how does the uh, Twitter or uh, it might be renamed Musk, or something like that. I don't know, right? Um, that that the that the echo chamber in there is not a talking point anymore. That it's just so large and so impactful and making so many impacts on their community that it would be um, it would just be really beautiful in that way. Perfect. Thank you uh, for coming on the show. I really appreciate yeah. it. I mean, it's not often that you get uh, an executive of a of a soccer league to come on a YouTube show. So I really appreciate that. Uh, and, and thank you for uh, sharing so much with us. Can you let us know where people can find you, where, where they can uh, contact you if they need to? Yeah, sure. Um, just, you know, just uh, probably Twitter is the easiest place if anyone wants to find me. I'm at, uh, at Gajans, which is G-A-E-T-J. ENS, which is the, um, it's an homage to Joe Gajans, who uh, scored the goal against England uh, in the 1950 World Cup. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the best place for people to find me. And then, of course, you know, anywhere in the USL ecosystem, I'll be around. So. And how very relevant is Joe Gajans now uh, as we well, <laughs> look to would, find would, England was, once again in the World Cup? The Christian Pulisic of his time, my friend. Absolutely. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Guys, thank you so much for watching. If you haven't yet, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button. Uh, For Greg Lawless, my name is Sam, and this is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.